Hi everyone, Tiffany here with a super quick note that this podcast was recorded as part of a previous bundle season. That means that the dates that you're about to hear for the bundle, well, they're no longer correct. If you're interested in seeing what the dates are for this year's sale, please visit thebellydancebundle.com. There you'll find all the up-to-date information on our upcoming bundle. While the dates may be wrong and the class mentioned here isn't available through us any longer, many of our guests still have their courses available for purchase individually, so please do feel free to click through to their offerings and take a look. You're going to want to check it out after hearing how brilliant they are. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. It's Yala Rocks episode 10 and today we're talking research. Knowing the history and culture of our dance are so important. It's so important, in fact, that it seems to have somehow become a bit of a theme around here with these bundle interviews. It comes up time and time again, and it's great to hear in theory, but how do you put it into practice? Research can be a four-letter word to some of us. We don't know where to start, and it seems kind of scary. I mean, who are we to take that on? Well, you're a dancer. That's who and you're perfectly poised to learn more about your dance. In fact, you already are. Nisa joins us today to talk about the importance of research, how you can find your own obsession, and why, whether you know it or not, you're already the thing that you think is so scary. Hello, you researcher you, and welcome to the podcast. Nisa will be presenting some of her research as part of the 2019 Belly Dance Bundle, which, if you don't have this date burned into your brain by now, I'd be surprised is on sale from October 16th to the 23rd. We'll be announcing all the courses that are part of this bundle on the homepage on Monday the 7th, so please stay tuned to see all the goodies in one place. You can learn more at thebellydancebundle.com. dancers and welcome to Yala Rocks, the belly dance podcast that helps you design your personal practice. I'm your host Tiffany and joining us today for one of our belly dance bundle minis is a dance teacher in St. Louis, Missouri, the author of Egyptian Belly Dance in Transition, The Rock Sharky Revolution, Heather Ward, also known as Nisa. Nisa, welcome. Hi everybody. It's so great to be here. So Nisa and I chat all the time. We're buds. So you're going to hear some, there's going to be some back and forth, I think, it today. might get a little crazy. <laughs> might get a little crazy in here. So despite being buddies, Nisa, I actually don't know how you got into belly dance. So let's start there. How did you find belly dance? What kind of, what was that aha moment that got you into this dance form and making it your life's work? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I started when I was a graduate student uh, in anthropology at the University of Illinois, I started as kind of a stress release and an escape from my graduate student life. Um, Very stressful time in my life. And when I started, I had all the stereotypes and misconceptions about belly dance. I, I thought I had a very fantasy idea of what it was. And um, I started by taking private lessons with a teacher, uh, I would call, uh, call her an American cabaret-style teacher um, in Urbana, Illinois. Very lovely lady. 
And I did that for about nine months. And then uh, for various reasons, when I relocated to St. Louis, I kept going. Um, but I carried a lot of those misconceptions for a long time, really for several years, honestly, even more than several years until even I started teaching beginner classes. Uh, the academic side of my brain and the private dancer side of me didn't really intersect for quite a long time. And for various reasons, I started to discover a, a disconnect between what I thought I knew about the dance and what I had been taught and what I was experiencing in my dance life. And um, I guess a lot of this was because I got more involved with uh, Arab friends, people who eventually became family to me. And it raised this cognitive dissonance about what I thought I knew. Eventually that dissonance became loud enough in my brain that I, I, I started to try to leverage my academic brain. And that part of my brain was very unhappy with what it found. And um, it led me to seek out uh, a lot more information. And that eventually in, I think 2009, led me to take Journey Through Egypt 1. And that was a big sea change in my life because I kind of found that I came full circle. So my dance self, my academic self were united and had a new mission of, you know, kind of reformatting what I knew about the dance from an academic standpoint. And by the time I went through Sahra's journey through Egypt levels and then started taking my own trips to Egypt to do more research, um, I really, began to feel like I was in a better place. Like I really understood the dance for what it was instead of what I wanted it to be. And that's kind of where I am now. You, you just like went straight in and answered my second question there as to how we got to the research part, how they combined forces. Psychic link, psychic link. Psychic link. So for our listeners who maybe, you know, aren't familiar with your work, this is what you do. You, you have almost like this period of dance that you have kind of deep dived into. Can you talk a little bit about like what almost like your specialty in dance research has become? Yeah, my obsession, <laughs> and I really have to call it an obsession, is with the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries when the traditional, I'll use the term belly dance, but basically the traditional dances that were practiced by professional entertainers called Awalam and Gawazi, when their style of what we know as belly dance uh, moved to theater stages, entertainment hall stages, and became a theatrical dance, what we now know as raksharki, this kind of uh, concert or theatrical form of belly dance. Um, the, the belly dance that people picture in their minds, you know, of the glamour, the bare navel, the beads and sequins. Um, how did we go from more traditional entertainment to that theatricalized kind of entertainment? So that's that's been, you know, it honestly, it was in Journey Through Egypt 1 that my curiosity really got piqued about that time period. Like, how did that come about? And it it I don't know why it connected with my brain so much, maybe because my anthropology brain, I'm, 
I just, I don't know, I love old things. <laughs> and, and I just love the idea of clarifying that transition because there's a lot of stuff that I had heard that I believed that just upon initial investigation was quickly dispelled. Um, and to just a quick glance into available Arabic sources from the time, really uh, dispelled a lot of misconceptions that I held. And I started to feel like, well, I want to find more about this and really share it with other people because I think that fact is so much more interesting than fantasy. I, I also really like to see where fact informs fantasy, where like yeah. you find the fact and you're like, oh, that's that's how this whole train here, that's sure. probably where that came from. I, I always love that connection as well when Absolutely. you start to really get into the weeds. So. You call it an obsession, <laughs> and this podcast is about practice. And so today we're going to talk about research as a part of a dance practice because I especially believe that a dance practice isn't just the time you spend on the dance floor. It's the time you spend listening to music, finding new music, doing research, learning about the history, learning about the culture. All of those things come together to make a complete dance practice, and that's why the bundle has all these different aspects in it because I feel like that's so important. So let's kind of combine what you're talking about here and then dance practice. And how do you split your time between like butt on the floor, practicing the technique, getting all of that together and this obsession, as you call it, with the research portion of it? Yeah, I, I feel like, um, well, I say obsession because my whole life is kind of consumed with dance. <laughs> and I would say that when I'm not in the studio teaching, I'm either lesson planning for my classes or I'm pursuing the different research threads that I have like um, kind of percolating in the back. Cause I, I know not any other researchers listening to this will know, like just cause the book came out didn't mean I just stopped everything. I never stopped. It just kind of got to a point where I had enough to write a book, but um, it's always simmering in the back and it always informs it, it. It definitely informs how I dance and how I perform and it informs how I teach my students too. Um, the two things really intersect because I'm very adamant about keeping the culture in the dance. And so I'm always trying to add to my knowledge. Like, I don't feel like you're ever finished. And when I'm teaching my students about, like, for example, I, uh, uh, the summer class session with my advanced students, my focus over the session, every session I have sort of a different theme. And the summer sessions theme with my advanced students was, the evolution of Egyptian belly dance over the course of the 20th century to now. So we went a few weeks on Awalam style, a few weeks on golden era, a few weeks on the, the kind of latter 20th century, like Soher Zaki, Najwa Fuad, into Fifi Abdu, and then into the contemporary styles commencing with Dina. And to do that, I had to pull upon that that not you know physical practice but that mental practice. So I had to pull up okay 
what are the video clips that are going to illustrate the salient points that I want them to see of these styles? And what are the salient cultural and historical points that I need to, to talk to them about when I introduce each of these time periods? So let me go back you know, to all my source materials, double check, review, make some bullet points, put the lesson together, because I don't want to just go into my studio and go, well, this is what golden era looks like, and just pull it off the top of my head. I want to make sure I'm, I'm giving them the most up-to-date information that I have on that so that they can, their curiosity is peaked, and then maybe if it's something they're into, they'll run away and, and that will become their obsession. Right. So, uh, and I never want my students to feel a doubt that I'm doing my due diligence, uh, that I'm doing my homework. Right. So I, I feel like I'm never not researching and trying to add to my knowledge base because again, you never stop. If you, if you have any instructor that says that they're the authority on X, be very careful because, you know, like I, I don't ever want to say I'm the authority on the, uh, the transition from Awalam and Gawazi to Rock Sharkey. I'm adding to that body of knowledge, but I'm, all, I'm always learning and then sharing what I've learned. And every instructor should be that way because knowledge is always continuing. Just like your technique is always growing, your knowledge base is always growing. You're never done. So beware that, that thinking that like, I, I've learned it, I know it, I'm done, case closed. Because case closed. it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I love, that way. I love that you bring this into your teaching and that, so I've been speaking to a lot of contributors lately on these, on these episodes and finding the goal for like, if you're a teacher, finding the goal for your students over the course of a six week class, right, is something that we've talked about in other episodes, whether this one comes out before or after those will have to, the listeners will have to tell us, but I love that your goals, they're tied into your research. Yeah. And that you're, that's how you are bringing the culture and all of that into your classes is with that, that historical basis for what's what we're doing now, because it's great to do all the things that we do now, but I feel like you can't do them with the respect and the accuracy that they deserve if you don't know where it came from, right? We talk a lot yeah. about knowing our history. Yeah, yeah. I love that that's how you plan your classes. Yeah, yeah. No, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm, I'm beating my poor students around the head and neck with like 19th century belly dance all No, the time. no, no. <laughs> Although some of them might chime in and say that I do that. But, we'll just uh, kick them off the podcast. Right. Yeah. No, but I no, I know what you mean. And I, I feel like um, we were talking before we kicked off the, the, the official podcast about last weekend, I put on an event uh, with Yasmin Henkesh and Retta Henkesh uh, in St. Louis. And um, one of the things that I said to the attendees when I was introducing the class and the show, I think I said this too, because I'm a nerd. Um, I, I said, you know, 
I, I can't bring you all to Cairo, but I'm going to bring Cairo to you. Because if they can't have the means to go to Egypt and learn from the source, I want to try to get them as close to the source as I can. Um, because getting them close to the source uh, is, is keeping the soul in it. You know, the soul that is the culture and the music. And uh, I want my students to have that, even if they can't, even if they don't have the means to fly to Cairo. That is a, that is an excellent aim, I think, as a teacher, for sure. So we've talked about how your research affects your teaching. I'd also like to know how it affects your actual, like your dance. Do you do things now that you didn't do before? Have you changed some of your actual dance practices based on all of this research that you've been doing? Yeah, one thing I will say is because this that time, that transition, and also just traditional belly dance in general, like Awala and, and Gawazi styles, because those things have become my obsession, they have informed how I dance, whether consciously or not. You know, I um, up until I started doing the research, I I was more of a tightly choreographed dancer. Um, I was dancing a lot more to uh, Tarab music, which I still do. I, I mean, good Lord, I love Um Kulthum and you know, all of that. But because I, I feel so connected to the traditional underlying styles, the Awalam and Gawazi styles and um, to early rock Sharky, I've found my my own personal style. I've kind of it, this has unleashed a very ballady kind of style in my own dancing, which feels very natural to me. It feels like more me than I felt before I started doing this, and so that it's definitely reflected in how I dance. And then when I do specific, not just reconstructions like period reconstructions but if I'm dancing like Shamadan or just generically Muhammad Ali street style or generically Awalam or Bwazi style uh, I try really very hard to choose music that's appropriate to choose costuming that's appropriate and to try to capture the the feel of the style which again because that's become kind of part of how I dance in recent years uh, has become a little more natural. So, but the thing that, that, that challenges me with that is that's how I dance, but I still need to expose my students to other ways because every dancer should have their own style in Egyptian dance. That's how Egyptian dance is. It's very personalized to you. And I don't want ever to make my students carbon copies of me. And so I try, while I want to teach them about these styles, I don't want them to feel like they've got to be uber bellity in their own performance. That's just me. You know, you don't have to do like the Muhammad Ali street floor work. You don't have to be able to do that to be a good dancer. But I love it because that's where my heart is now. I wonder how much of an appreciation for that style informed like the spark that led to the research side and how much the research side 
led to the spark that like now that's how you dance like how I wonder how entwined like and we'll never know good question because definitely there's a feedback loop right yeah because like when the first time I went to Cairo and this was with Sahara it everything suddenly made sense you know lots of people say that <laughs> My life made sense and you know that Sahara always uh, brings musicians and you have that chance to dance with live musicians and at that time uh, early this was early in JTE she was uh, hosting people at the the Sphinx guest house and we were dancing to these musicians with the window the bank of windows facing the Sphinx and the pyramids and I, I really dancing with them, suddenly I felt everything change for me. And I felt comfortable with improvising. I felt, you know, all that kind of click. And at the same time, like immediately my favorite places in Cairo were Muhammad Ali Street, uh, Khan Al-Khalili and Hussein and Ataba and all those old you know, entertainment centers, like everything felt right. I can't explain it. It's really weird. I'm not a woo-woo person, but you know, everything kind of like just dovetailed together. And then as I continued, you know, in my own performing, it just kept creeping in and then doing the research. I just, you know, there are times when I would read sources and I just close my eyes and feel what it must have been like to be on one of those stages with those musicians in those old times. And then that made me like in a performance, close my eyes and pretend I was on one of those stages. And yeah, so it's the, each has fed the other. And um, I really, it's, it's my, definitely my happy place now. And I think it shows, I feel like I had the pinnacle of that uh, because I, I decided, <laughs> right up until I stepped on the stage with Retta Hinkesh, okay, I had decided to do Shamadan, which is a Muhammad Ali Street thing. And here's this Muhammad Ali Street drummer. And I, before I went out there, I'm like, Nisa, you are a moron. Like, what are you, <laughs> why are you doing this to yourself? Like, dancing Shamadan with this Muhammad Ali Street drummer, why are you putting this kind of pressure on yourself? I swear to God, my music started, my foot hit the stage, and I was there. Like, just his drumming and the thing on my head, and I just was like immediately transported. And, you know, I was in Cairo, and I just everything about it felt so right. So, yeah, that when I say it's my happy place, I, that's not even an exaggeration. So hopefully everyone who's listening, the excitement that you're hearing from Misa and hearing how her research has informed her dance and her dance has informed her research has gotten you excited about research. I had an ulterior motive. <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners, what importance do you feel that research of any kind into the belly dance world is important in a belly dance practice? Oh my God, it's so important because, you know, when you're a dancer learning a cultural dance, you can't be just learning technique. You have to be learning 
the, the cultural framework that surrounds that technique. So everybody who's learning this, whether they realize it or not, is a researcher. Because you're researching rhythms, you're researching makamat, the makams, you're, you're researching um, songs, lyrics, uh, you're researching um, styles, you know, like shabby music versus like uh, the long form songs of Um Kulthum and Abdul Halim. All of this is stuff you have to, to, to learn and to know to be an informed practitioner. So I think uh, it's really critical. It's not, research doesn't just mean like the ultra nerd stuff of, you know, trying to decipher like the evolution of belly dance in the 19th century. Research is any of the topics that inform your dance. So I think everybody out there, whether they realize it or not, is partaking in this. So to be engaged with it and to do it in a way that's productive and meaningful, I think is important. So uh, it's official. I'm going to be calling all of our listeners researchers for the rest of the podcast. Woo-hoo! Because I've never heard it phrased that way, that if you are dancing this dance, you are a researcher of some kind. And I think that's awesome. I think that's really empowering for people to like go out and learn more. Yeah. Because they're already, they're already researchers. You don't even have to like cross the hurdle. You already got there. Yeah. And I think, I, I think people get scared or gun shy, like research, you have to be an academic and you have to be a scholar and you can be academic and be scholarly without being an academic and being a scholar. You know, you can engage in those methods um, and inform what you do. And it, it just brings more, um, accuracy and authenticity to your practice. And, you know, if you're, if you're about innovation, it means you're innovating from an informed place rather than an uninformed place. But I think all that is, is really achievable for everybody and they shouldn't be afraid and feel like, Oh, I've got to leave that to the quote experts. Yeah. Love it. So for our researchers, how do they work to find, so obviously you found the thing that lights you up, right? Is this very specific part of history. You're going to get real nerdy with it. For our researchers at home, how do they find that thing that lights them up? Wow. That's really an interesting question. And I, you know, I, I can only speak to how it happened for me. I think you have like a whole, like there's, there's something that needs to be filled and maybe you don't know what that is, but you keep attempting, like you keep taking classes and workshops and you keep seeking. And then that thing that you need to fill that hole appears when you need it. For me, JTE, Journey Through Egypt, was the thing that I needed. And I didn't really know when I signed up for that course that it would take me in that direction. It would slingshot me into this direction. I just knew I needed something. I needed, like, I personally, I was craving, you know, more of the the -the on-the-ground knowledge of what the dance is in Egypt. So I said, well, Clearly, this woman knows what she's talking about, and clearly, this course is covering a broad array of things that may help me. So let me try this. And it was in the course of it, of taking the class, that 
suddenly the light bulb came on and I, I started to feel like I was getting filled up in that hole, you know? So I can't say that you necessarily going to know what it is you need until it hits you in the face. So <laughs> basically follow the things that you enjoy and exposure yeah. because something will trip the switch. Something, for, and you know, because suddenly there's this thing that you cannot stop thinking about. You can't stop like looking up YouTube clips and books and articles and you lie awake thinking about it. And when you think about it, you have a warm fuzzy. <laughs> like when I would think about a Wallum and I would just get warm fuzzies, just like- Sparks sitting- Joy, Marie Kondo, Sparks Joy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, we're so current. (laughs) We try. We try here at the Belly Dance Bundle. So right there on the cusp. (laughs) (laughs) So for the, for the researchers, I'm going to keep starting all my sentences with for the researchers. Again, for the researchers, what are some best practices when they're kind of diving into research of any kind, whether they're researching music, macomb, history, culture, like what have you found to be just some generally good things to keep in mind while you're out there surfing the web of misinformation and golden information and somewhere in the middle information and how on earth do I kind of navigate all of this, especially as a baby belly dancer, like coming Mm -hmm. in and it's like, I don't know enough to know what to know, you know? (laughs) Yeah, 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 no, totally. I will say that there are three things that I would note that are kind of scholarly or academic best practices that I find are very important that I think that unless you have a background in academia and in scholarly research, maybe you don't know about these things. Um, The first thing is to understand the difference between a primary source and a secondary source. A primary source is something directly uh, from the same time, the same place as the thing you're interested in. So like for me, I'm interested in the turn in the 19th and 20th century. So a primary source about that would be, let's say, an Arabic newspaper article from 1890. That's a primary source because it's, it's from, by people at that time, at that place. A secondary source is removed. It's from beyond that time and that place. So, and there's degrees of how far removed it is. So maybe it was somebody from uh, the 1940s writing about what was going on in the 1890s, but that's still not necessarily a direct observer of those things. And you have to take that into account. And then somebody like me who wrote a book about that time period, I'm a secondary source. So I, you know, it's necessary for even if you're reading my book, penetrate in to the primary sources that I cite, because those are the things that are firsthand and bring you closer to a cultural reality or a historical reality. So that difference I think is important. The second thing is to seek independent verification of the things that you read, that you hear. It doesn't mean that you, you're mistrusting somebody. It just means, you know, if, if one person tells you an interesting fact, 
it's much stronger if you hear that fact reiterated by some by a second by a third by a fourth person who's also in the know so what i find is it's best to collect information from a range of sources pull those sources together and it's like and and the the facts rise to the surface and you skim them off but if you hear one thing from one source and take it at face value that can be very risky because that person might not be deliberately misleading you but they're reporting maybe what they heard or their own oral tradition which might not necessarily match up with fact and it's not that that person again is being willfully misleading it's just this is human nature i like to call those confabulations yeah yeah because yeah. it's not a lie they're not lying they yeah. they think no. they're telling the truth so like, right i call that a confabulation it's it's important to note like this is what so-and-so states about you know this rhythm or this historical event or this per uh, person in dance history and okay so let me seek out and see if anybody else in the know says something similar let me see if a primary source backs this up it's just due due diligence really due diligence exactly exactly and then last the third thing that i would say is to seek out references cited in the works that you're reading or uh, works that you're watching maybe on DVD or video, YouTube video. Like um, in my book, I cite pages and pages of my sources because for research, it's important that I show you where I got my information so that if you want to follow up and look at those same sources, and maybe those sources will lead you down a different rabbit hole than what they led me down. You know, so I, those, when you see a bibliography or a list of works cited at the end of a book, at the end of an article, don't just skip those pages. Those are really, in some ways, the most important part of the work because they're the springboard for more. They should be the springboard for more research, not, they're not just proof that I did my due diligence, they're also a way for you to explore. Um, so I would explore, they're, they're the gateway drug into other research questions. That's why I love resource lists, just in general. Like if you're, if you're looking something up online and then they're like, oh, here's a list of resources about these rhythms or this person or yeah. books to read. I'm like, yes, let me go through this resource list and check yeah. it out. Like use, anytime you find a resource list in the belly dance world, researchers, grab it, run with it, check it out because that's what's going to lead you to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And suddenly you have this whole wealth of knowledge that when you first started belly dancing, I guarantee you, you didn't think you were going to know this much about belly dance. Yep. 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 And everyone around you is going to know way more about belly dance than they thought they would ever know. If my husband had any idea how much he was going to learn about belly dance, <laughs> he might've made different choices. <laughs> Just saying. He would have run screaming into the night. <laughs> He's like so involved now. He loves it. But it's just, he never thought that this was where like his life was going to end up, right? I didn't think this is where my life was going to end up. Like, let's just. Nor did I. So, all right, everyone. Hopefully that has inspired you to do some, do some reading today as part of your dance practice. You know, 
pick up a book, flip through a bibliography, research that thing that you've kind of been wondering about. Maybe has somebody, has somebody done anything about that? Check it out. See if it's out there. Misa is including in the 2019 Belly Dance Bundle, her lecture. uh, I'm going to go for the whole title here. It's a long one, guys. Cairo for Belly Dance Historians, a guide for finding the roots of rock sharky in modern Cairo. Ta-da! (laughs) Ta-da! This lecture is awesome. She's given it before. It got some rave reviews. So everyone, if you're interested, you can check it out in the Belly Dance Bundle 2019 or if you're listening to this far in the future and you're like, oh, I need to know more about this period of history, you can check it out on Nisa's site. And you can also check out more about that time period in her book, Egyptian Dance in Transition, The Rock Sharky Revolution. Nisa, other than the two wonderful resources that I've just mentioned, where else can people find you on the internet? How can they connect? Oh, on the interwebs? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first uh, line of attack would be my website. Um, But uh, I am on Facebook uh, as Belly Dance with Nisa. I am on Instagram and I'm getting better at it all the time. (laughs) should be part of our 21 days of belly dance, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Check it out. Yeah. And uh, I, if you visit my website too, I have an email newsletter that folks can subscribe to. And I have a YouTube channel um, where I occasionally upload um, videos of me. And also I have some playlists set up of uh, various Egyptian dance styles. Ooh, I bet that's exciting. I'm going to put that link in the show notes for sure for everyone. So researchers, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Nisa, thank you so much for this chat. I love getting nerdy about that. You are ever so welcome. I love nerding out with other nerds. <laughs> that's definitely us. I think, I think there's no doubt after today. No doubt. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. So how do you feel, researcher? Excited to go pick up a book and do a bit of reading? Or maybe do a deep dive on the internet to research a favorite topic? Now, I'm not encouraging that you do this on your break at work, but, you know, sometimes curiosity gets the better of you. Research is such an intrinsic part of this dance, and it's one that's often overlooked as a core component of a dance practice. In addition to all of the benefits that it can bring to your actual dance, it's also a really great way to get into your practice when things maybe aren't on the up and up. Feeling down and not able to get to the dance floor? Pick up a book. Have an injury that stops you from dancing the way you want to? Grab an online lecture and spend your time there instead. It's amazing that we have all of these resources now, and this is a wonderful way that they can put to use. And if we take away some of the pressure to always spend our time actually dancing, we'll find a lot of ways to commit to our dance that we can do under almost any circumstances. Almost like listening to a podcast when you're off doing errands or something. Because this, right now, this is research too. I really got you with that ulterior motive today, didn't I? If you enjoyed today's episode, please go ahead and subscribe to Yala Rocks. You can find us on any place podcasts are found. And if you've really been liking it, you can go to thebellydancebundle.com slash review to leave us one. Or you can just tell a friend about us. That works too. Don't forget that we will be announcing all the courses on the homepage on Monday the 7th. So be sure to head over to thebellydancebundle.com to sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a thing. And this year's bundle, if you haven't already guessed is kind of amazing. 
all of these amazing guests coming together to bring you what one of our buyers last year described as the potpourri of online belly dance learning. And I kind of love that analogy. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing and for being you. The world needs your dance, so thank you for putting the time and effort into it. You can check out Nisa's challenge on the 21 days of belly dance if you'd like some homework for today, but it's okay. You're a researcher. You can handle it. And if you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find those at thebellydancebundle.com slash 10. See you tomorrow.